Hi, this is Justin Wilson, and you need more from Wayne. Hello and welcome to another More Front Wing podcast. I'm Steph Walcraft, joined by my co-editor Paul Dalmody, and we were hoping to have our contributor John Lingle in with us tonight because there's just so darn much to talk about. And he and I were both on site at this past weekend's Shell and Pennzoil Grand Prix of Houston with two races, and so we were hoping to have that extra perspective. But unfortunately, he was called to other duties and is not able to join us tonight. But I don't think we're going to be lacking for any topics to cover in uh, in our one-hour show today, which is going to be difficult to cram everything into, given that there were two races and they were both very busy. There seemed to be just a ton of storylines to follow. And um, so we're just going to dive right into them, uh, maybe eschew our usual format a little bit and just sort of hit all of the major points one by one. We usually have time to sort of dig into some of the smaller stories, but gosh darn it, we had two races and a whole bunch of really controversial stuff. And then we're on to Pocono just next weekend. So we better get it all taken care of. Um, I think we would probably be remiss if we didn't start with the biggest story of the weekend, this um, this penalty to Marco Andretti. And so the um, impetus for that was, just as a reminder, in race one, about halfway through roughly, um, Marco Andretti was in front of uh, race leader Takuma Sato about to go a lap down. And uh, his teammate, James Hinchcliffe, was in second place trying to catch up to Sato. Marco's story was that he was doing his best to stay on his lap to fight for his lap and um, race control saw it differently. They saw the times from Marco Andretti drop as um, as he saw that the race leader was behind him. We heard reports from trackside from several sources that there were radio transmissions going to at least James Hinchcliffe telling him that Marco Andretti was holding up the race leader for him to let him catch up. He went from roughly um, a four second lead to a ha- uh, half a second lead Sato did during that time and then when race control began to show blue flags and that is a courtesy flag but still needs to be heated to Marco Andretti he ignored them and eventually was given a black flag which resulted in a drive-through penalty but the uh, the more unprecedented part of it the even more unprecedented part of it was having Marco Andretti handed a $2,500 fine, as well as the team received a $2,500 fine, and Marco will be on probation for, I think, is it the next three races? Three, yep. Yeah. Well, two uh, Right, because uh, Sunday's race counted as one of them for for the infraction. And I know that we've got very different opinions on the subject. Paul, would you like to offer yours first? I would prefer to let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. Um, well, the way I saw it was I... It's interesting because everybody's playing a very political game with this one, right? And the story goes even deeper because I personally heard audio and uh, and three others who were nearby me in the media center did as well. In fact, I received the audio for the story that went up on more front wing on Sunday morning from – I'll give you the names because they really do deserve credit. They were the ones who who uh, got the, the information from Derek Walker. It was Matt Weaver of Open Wheel Now. And, um, oh, my gosh, I'm blanking on this next gentleman's name. That's terrible. Joey Barnes of Tribute Racing. There we go. And um, Christopher DeHard of Motorsport.com. And the uh, the three of them supplied me with the audio, which I heard with my own ears, of Derek Walker saying that this um, blue flagging driver who was about to go a lap down 
but was not already a lap down was unprecedented. And it was um, his exact wording was we made a new rule. Now, I don't believe that they had to make a new rule if they wanted to to come right out and say that the reason that they were doing it was because they knew that they had audio from the team saying that they were they were working together, but they didn't want to do that. And that was something that, um, in speaking separately to Marco Andretti, Marco also said they'd better not do that because they'll be in trouble. So they probably figured they didn't have quite enough to go on and decided to go a different angle for basically saying what you were doing is not okay. And so what they went after was the you can't ignore race control angle, which they didn't really have anything specific on the book for, I don't think, which is where the confusion came in. So if they had if they had been a little bit more direct in, in terms of what they had decided to penalize for, then they wouldn't have had to say something quite so controversial. But it got even more controversial because then after the race, uh, John Orvitz of ESPN.com went to Walker and got him basically outright denying that he had ever said it and providing an alternate explanation. If you go and look out there, I think it's on OpenWheelNow.com with Matt Weaver. Um, He's actually posted now the audio and it's turning into a little bit of a, pardon the expression, a kerfuffle. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But... um, not wanting to go too far down that road because that's really a side story to, to the ultimate point, which is that this is not something that IndyCar has, has said outright. This is not something that they have done before or something that they necessarily want to do in the future, but they felt like they needed to deal with it somehow. For me, if Marco is just flat out driving to stay on the lead lap, I'm totally down for that. I think I've said that before several times, but if, and um, Steve Wittich at, the setupsheet.com actually posted lap times uh, lap for all three of the drivers, Marco Andretti, Tecumisano, and James Hinchcliffe, for the laps throughout the incident. And you can see that Marco did slow down markedly in a couple of spots. Um, unfortunately, Steve didn't publish, or nor did he have the data, I don't believe, which laps Marco received the blue flag and the black flag on, because that would have sort of had an impact on how you would read the data. But certainly you could see from doing it that that there were times when Marco ran a couple of quite slow laps. Um, And so if I guess the way I see it is I don't see it as simply Marco racing to to stay on the lead lap. That's something that I would support. And he has said that that is all he was doing. And I'd like to be able to believe him, except that I've heard too many people say that they have evidence to the contrary. I do think that IndyCar needs to take a stand. Um, in a not allowing the larger teams to push the smaller teams around that way because that's a precedent that they simply cannot allow to be set. Because, um, I mean, look at who, you, who you've who got there. Takuma Sato is on a single-car team. He's got nobody to back him up in that kind of situation, whereas Andretti has four cars to work with. And, yes, some amount of gamesmanship is always present in this sport, always has been, always will be. But if, it, if race control has evidence that it's happening, then they need to keep it from happening and Frankly, no, drivers should not be allowed to ignore race control. That, and Derek was absolutely right in saying that that's an issue that, that if Marco disagrees with it, he needs to take it up with the administration after the race. And so I thought I, the final conclusion that I reached was that I agreed with it. I thought it was a good call. You disagree. Go ahead. I do. And I, I think there are several points, too, that there are a lot of layers to peel back to this whole incident. Uh, let's talk about one that I think you and I agree on is if – the call for a penalty to Marco Andretti 
or, or a, a direct command was given to Marco Andretti to move over, then he needs to heed that command. I, I agree with you on that point. You can't simply ignore race control. I mean, that, that's just that's that's a basic premise. And if that's the case, I'm in total agreement with you. If he had kept driving for a couple more laps under the black flag, they would have just stopped scoring him. Certainly. And, and there's the next question. I don't Was Marco ever actually black flagged? Yes. He was. He okay. did a drive through. It's on the box score. Okay. I didn't know that he had actually gotten it. And as far yeah. as I know, he, answer, he answered the black flag as soon as it came out. Did he not? Uh, more or less, I believe. I think, you know, I didn't hear any of the radio discourse during all of that. Um, it may be that he was sort of in discussion with the team about whether he should do that. And it might have taken him a lap longer. Mm-hmm. I'm not, comp- I don't remember that perfectly. It, it wasn't terribly long anyway. Okay. It was a long time with the, the blue flags were waving more than five laps. I think I heard Walker okay, say. And, and that may be the case. And, but, but you and I agree to the point that if a penalty is called on Marco, he has to heat that. I'm not disagreeing with you whatsoever on that. Now the whole issue of the blue flag, first of all, if we read the rule, the rule is 7.2.5.2 from the rule. Oh, you've got it ready, have you? How'd you know that? <laughs> it says, at road and street course events, when displayed from the starter stand to a lapped car, as an order directly by IndyCar, the blue flag is a command to immediately give way. Marco, in this case, was not a lapped car. Marco was on the lead lap. This rule does not apply to him. He had no... In that case... The, the blue flag is just a signal that there is an overtaking driver behind him, that he has no obligation whatsoever to move over. Secondly, this race was run in the rain still at that point. So if you look at those lap times and you see one lap or two laps out of these laps that may be off by a second or two seconds, that's not necessarily surprising. These are very difficult conditions. It was extremely wet at the beginning of that race. So to... To say that everyone, you know, this isn't a, a one and a half mile oval where all your laps are within a tenth of a second of each other. There is a lot of variation here. The, the course itself is tricky. You throw in the water, it's an extremely tricky situation. So just saying that his lap times varied before and after some given point in time, to me, doesn't meet the burden of proof to say that he has guilty of an infraction. Next. I'm with you right up to the point until... The team is on Hinch's radio saying to him, Marco's in front of Sato, he's going to hold him up. Okay, well, we haven't gotten there yet. Just All right. Go. All right. Now you're breaking my train of thought. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I might be doing it on purpose. No, I'm not. <laughs> so Marco is on the lead lap. You and I both agree that he has the right to stay to, to fight to stay on the lead lap. Absolutely. If, if Sato is a quicker car, he should be able to get by. Marco did no... Didn't violate any blocking. Ah, he, did he? now this is something. Hold on, I want to talk about this because this is something that Walker talked about in the audio that I listened to, but I didn't put it in the story because it wasn't directly relevant to the point that I was trying to make. But it is a good point. The conditions which you talked about didn't allow for Sato to have an easy way by Andretti because okay, because basically what what. You know, if, if Andretti was running significantly slower lap times than Sato, which he was at times, what and, and Walker said this, what's what's Sato going to do? Is he going to make a bonsai move down into the wet on slicks to, to try to go get past a lap car? No, of course he's not. 
It's Sato. Is it that might a rhetorical be, question? It might be the most sane decision he made all weekend, but that's another discussion. <laughs> um, so, no, of course he's not going to do that. And so Walker's argument was that given the conditions, Andretti was – he didn't put it this way. I'm paraphrasing, but basically the burden was on Andretti to be courteous. Oh, no, it's not. I'm not sure I fully agree with that either. I don't, but, I don't agree with that at all. No, it's not. It's not Marco's fault that, the, that it's raining out. He's entitled as the lead driver to take whatever line he so chooses. He didn't block. He didn't do anything visually – from a lateral standpoint anyway, to impede Sato's times or impede his progress. The fact that the track, A, it's a street course, it's hard to pass on anyway, and B, the conditions made it even harder, that's not Marco's fault. It is the, it is the responsibility of the passing driver to find a safe position to get past. And if you're not fast enough to get past him, then that's the... But it's not a matter of fast. I'm not disagreeing with you. I agree with you. The burden is on the passing driver, absolutely. But there was no safe way, quote-unquote, to pass. There was only one dry line on the entire track. Did you track. watch the first 20 laps of that race and see how Takuma... Everybody was on wets then. He they were on slicks by that by this point. They were on wets at the beginning of the race. They had a the, then that is the risk you take by going to slicks. That is not Marco's fault that Takuma decided to go to slicks and therefore gave himself basically a one lane track around the a one lane groove all the way around the track. Not Marco's fault. Once again, fault. I'm right there with you up until the point where the team is on the radio with Hinch saying that that Marco's going to hold Sato up. So keep talking. Okay, and I would agree with you if if that is a team order. If that's no, can't use the word order. There's no, they didn't, I don't believe that, there, nobody has any proof that anybody said anything to Marco. Exactly. Nobody has any proof that anybody said anything to Marco. So your whole argument about people being on the radio is completely moot. There's no, no proof of it whatsoever. Moot. It's not completely moot. All right, so, fine. You get 10%. The rest of the 90%. Oh, come on. No, until you oh, prove to me. you're being deliberately obtuse now. Uh, no, no, you're using this argument that says that you're right with me until until the, the radio communication because says my, he's going to Because my feeling is that they wouldn't have said that to Hinch if they didn't have some reason to believe that, uh, that Marco was going to be holding him up. I don't think they would have just said, oh, well, he's in front of him. So, he's, so the, you know, I, I guess that means that, that he's probably – to me, they, they don't say that to Hinch unless there's some basis for believing that, that that's going to have an impact somehow. I still don't buy it. I, there's I no still, proof. The fact, the fact that Takuma went to Slicks it's is good not Marco's fault. It, no, it's not. No, it's good enough for me to, to serve the penalty on because there is an, they, they don't have enough to make a full allegation of collusion – from that one radio transmission, but they have enough to be able to say something's off here. And really, what well, you know, something that really hasn't been discussed at all. We're all talking about this like it's some kind of big monumental penalty. It was a slap on the wrist, really. Oh no, no, no! It's not even a penalty. It's twenty five hundred dollars. That's not even a half a set of tires. So no, no, it's this really is impressive. This yeah, it's more to make a point than anything else. Yes, and, exactly. And to that end, I think they've done the exact right thing because they're they're trying to make the point that we're not going to put up with you guys ignoring race control and we're not going to put up with what we're seeing as a, as a potential side effect here of, of team collusion. But what and those did he ignore? Things. Tell me, what did he ignore? Well, and this is something that, as you were saying, I think that is worth addressing is that to me, I mean, it's better than it used to be, no question, but to me, that 
rule about the blue flag being only the the word lapped car being in there just just means that the rule is poorly written. Nonetheless, That's it's still the rule. rule. Fine, but it's race control limiting themselves for no good reason. Make you the can't blue flag make up a rule in the middle of an event to rectify a poorly written rule. If you agree, this is a poorly I, written rule. It did because that's what Derek Walker said. We made up a new rule, and even though we didn't what, hide it later. Maybe well, yes. that's the one they're talking about. I don't know. Well, nonetheless, you can't go back and retroactively a, a, apply a rule that you just made up in the middle of the event. You can't do I'll it. Think they've got a bulletin by now. Maybe. And if that's the case going forward, then that's the case going forward. It was not the case when this quote-unquote infraction took place. So in in my opinion, he never violated any rule whatsoever. Well, hang on, unless, hang on. Unless, unless there is specific proof that there was a, an actual radio transmission that indicated team orders. Then you well, have a violation. But, I, but I, there's another... There's another thing that needs to be thought about here is that they didn't they did say that the blue flags were not the only warning that they gave to Marco. He got he was given audio warnings over the radio as well apparently. Uh, for what though? You nobody has explained to me what he violated. What is the violation? There's no well, violation. No, that's what we're talking about. They wanted him to move over. They didn't know they didn't know why at the time, but that's not That's not know. good enough. That's not good enough. It's not great, but, I mean, Derek's right. They can't just ignore race control. If race control is telling them to move over, they need to move over and make the argument later. So if race control tells Justin Wilson to get out of his car and change his own tires on a pit stop, what, he has to do it? Come on. You can't just make up goofy rules because you feel like I don't like it either. I don't like it either. All All right, answer me this. And this is totally hypothetical, but you know as well as I know that this happens. Let's say late in this race. Remember late in the race, uh, the, the, the uh, Justin Wilson was leading, Carlos Huertas was second, and refresh my memory, who was running third? Uh, was it Montoya? Uh, who second? Because, yeah, that's who it was. Montoya. Okay. L- let's just say let, let's just say that, that Wilson's leading, Montoya has a streaking fast car. And it's not the same uh, no, no, thing. No, hold on. Wait, stop, stop, stop. Let me get my situation out here. Why? We're wasting time. You're making a bad point. We're on a recorded anyway. podcast. We can sit here until the cows come home. <laughs> Justin Wilson doesn't have a car necessarily to win. Montoya is streaking fast. Huertas is six laps short of making it to the end of the race. You're not even talking about the same thing. Why am I not? Because Justin Wilson is not on the verge of being lapped. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. It does. No, actually. It, why? 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 Why is it different if a car if a car that's on the lean lap about to be lap maybe drives a little bit slower and brings the leader back to his teammate who's in second place? What is the difference than that than if a slower teammate in second place drives a little bit because slower? Because you're racing for position, up? and that answers the entire question. And this is going to come up again for when position? we. Explain. When you're talking about moving Justin Wilson out of the way for Montoya, it's for position. No, no, I'm not moving anyone out of the way. I'm saying, let's say Huertas, as Wilson's teammate, drives a little bit slower, but not quite slow enough that Montoya can get around him, but slow enough where Wilson can take off to a four-second lead all of a sudden. That's still for position. Yeah, well. So that completely negates your entire point. No, my point is, you know... 
that they're being sneaky about. That is absolutely no different than this. But it's for position. No. It's no. not a it's not a car that's about to be la- no. It's not even the same thing. Stop. You're, You're a, weak. No. no. The whole point of what Derek Walker's argument was, if you listen to the audio, was that he affected the the outcome and the running of the race. He affected the positions of the cars. So whether you affect those positions, no, that's by exactly what IndyCar didn't want to. Closer, no, 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 that's exactly what IndyCar didn't want to cop to. That's what they didn't want to admit that it was, and they talked around it in every way they possibly could. Yeah, that's well, that's what we all really, at the end of it all, think it was. Uh, the, the but they wouldn't come out and say so. No, it's no different if you back a leader up. It is so different. The place, or you back the third, second place, or third place up away from the leader. It's no different. Uh, it is a team. It is a teammate protecting another teammate, and it is no different. It may look no, it's different, really but different. The, the principle it's really is very different. the same. The principle no, really is exactly the same. Because you're asking a third place car then to go buy a second place car. You're not asking a third place car to go buy a lap car. Asking a third place car to go buy a second place car makes a lot more sense because a third place car has a reason to risk himself. I can't even believe I'm making this argument. I cannot believe. Listen to me. I cannot believe that I'm making an argument in favor of pulling a lap a, a car that's about to be lapped out of the way because that is so against everything that I stand for in racing, right? But in this specific case, I can see why they did it, and I can I can understand it. No, no, I, I see no difference in either of those situations. And I don't like I don't like you know wishy washy rules either. But I think the upshot of it is that they probably need to change the wording of their blue flag rule. I think we can agree on that. And I said, well, I addressed wait, wait, this. Do we, really hey, whoa, do we Yeah, we do. do. Why? Yeah, Why? because You're I addressed this. You you shut up for a second. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> I addressed this in my first impressions column, right? The blue flag by nature is, is somewhat discretionary. Right? Should be. It's I think it always has been. It's a it's a precautionary or a uh, yeah. A signal. It's a warning, mm-hmm. and by nature of of what it's meant to do, it's somewhat discretionary, right? So if you save it for those moments when you really need it, like you're not just telling a, a car that's about to be lapped to get out of the way, you're talking about guys who are deliberately getting in someone's way or somebody who's three laps down and really has no right to be racing for position. If you save it for those times then I don't think you need that word lapped car in there. And you can take lapped out and just say car. If you see the blue flag, it's for a reason, we promise. And you need to heat it and you have X amount of time. And if you don't, you're going to do it in that time. You're going to get black flagged. And if you don't need the black flag, we're going to stop scoring you. It should be to the extent that any blue flag rule can be black and white. I think that's about as black and white as you can make it. I vehemently disagree with you. Because if you take the lap car out of there, now you don't get to fight for, for. No, you're not listening to me. The right, point of what I'm saying, no, no, shut up. The point of what I'm saying is that they're not going to show. <laughs> we knew this was going to happen. We've been joking about this on Twitter for three days. The point of of the rule being worded that way is that they're not going to show it to any car that's sitting in front of the the, the leader who's about to be put they one lap. They just did. Right, but that's what I'm saying to you. Listen to me. The point of it being worded that way is that they're not going to just use it willy-nilly for every car that's about to be lapped. If the if the there's a discretionary element to it. If the car that's about to be lapped is keeping pace and is not getting in the way and is not deliberately trying to hold the leader up, then let him go. Right? 
the blue flag should be reserved for situations where you've got, say, say Marco's three laps down and he's doing that. Clearly, he needs to get that front out of the way. Get him out of there. I agree. Yeah. So that's the when you, you that's when you save the blue flag for. Or if you've got, you know, even a situation like just for for arguments for this argument's sake, Marco's, you know, is second or two even slower than he was, and he's clearly holding the leader up for some other reason, get him out of the way. Save the blue flag for those kinds of situations. Don't just wave it at anybody that, that you know, that, and I'm going to be a little bit mean here, but that Juan Montoya thinks is holding him up because every weekend somebody's holding Juan Montoya up and qualifying, but that's another argument. Um, so for, you know, just, just be more discretionary about, when you use the blue flag in the first place and then have a very black and white process for what you do once you've gotten your first one. That's what makes the most sense to me. I think somebody may correct me on this, but I would almost swear once upon a time, and maybe it was only on oval events, but I thought they used to display a blue flag with a yellow flag directed at a driver to indicate that they were there was a faster car and they needed to let him go. I don't remember that, but that doesn't mean it. I mean, happen. We're talking many years ago. Yeah. And and, and I, I have vague recollection, and if, if any of our listeners could confirm or deny that, I, I'd appreciate it. But maybe that's something we look at here. That's not, you know... The Why? Blue that's no, no, because that's in not my opinion, the blue... Because in my opinion, the blue flag is a warning flag. If you want to bring someone in and get them out of the way, give them the black flag. Right. So what's the problem with the blue flag being the warning flag and the black flag being the, okay, you really need to move now flag? Well, I think, okay, if that's the case, if if you want to use the black flag for that, then okay. That's what I'm saying. Have a prescribed process for it, right? Have some, have some pretty serious discretion for when you showed the blue flag in the first place. And then once you get that first one out there, you've got X number of laps to comply in a safe manner, say three, or if you want to be really generous, five, which is a different amount of time at different tracks, but, you know. And then if you don't comply with the blue flag in that amount of time, then you're going to get shown the black. You don't think that's going to open an argument about the discretion of race control on who gets to we, race? And we've had the discretion argument so many times, but I think that if... I think you, that more than anyone, control. wanted to get rid of all the discretion. I do. I do. But this is one situation where I don't think you can get away from it, and that's why I... like. It really needs to be for very extreme situations. What, do you really think this was a very extreme situation in the grand scheme of things? On a wet track, a driver at the end, you know, he, he was showed he was quick enough. He wasn't. He wasn't two seconds <laughs> right off the pace. You until Hinch just got his team on the radio saying Marco's ahead of Sato and he's going to hold him up. And that's that right there is when you get the question mark that throws the wrench into everything. And we're and we've come full circle, and we're never going to agree on this. So I think we should just leave Let's it just there. Just agree that I'm right, and we'll move on to the no, next. No, no, we'll agree to disagree. <laughs> if any of our listeners want to chime in, please do so in the comments section of the post where you find this podcast, because we would certainly love to hear from all of you. It's been a little while since Paul and I have so violently disagreed on something. So it's in a, yeah, in a in a sort of um, masochistic way. It's actually a lot of That's fun. fun. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, but certainly, like, let us know what, what you all think out there, and um, we we'll have to... We should put a poll up. Can we put a poll no, up? No, we don't do enough polls. We should go all George Phillips and we start should. polls. <laughs> we should. We should put a poll yeah. up. Then we can prove once and for all that people agree with me. Oh, oh, sweetie. <laughs> it's really cute that you think that. 
Anyway, let's move on because we're never going to get to it through everything else if we don't just agree to disagree and stop butting heads on this one. I think we've both made our arguments. So let us know what you think out there and let's move on. So did you think that you would hear that uh, Carlos Huertas was going to be a race winner? <laughs> this I, week? I thought I was in a total, I thought I was in a, an alternate universe. I, 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 I'm still struggling to get my head around the fact yeah. that. I think my line in in the first impressions was I don't remember flying here from Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, okay. good for him. And it is good for him. And know, he drove I, well. I just hope that he doesn't. It doesn't turn into one of those things like the excuse that they, people use for Danica's win all the time. Oh, it was a fuel mileage race. He didn't really win, but oh no, he drove well. He did. Yeah. yeah, and it was really too bad for him that things went so p- very poorly on Sunday, and he ended up dropping out on lap one. It sounded like – lap one, lap two, I think he was scored to. And uh, according to his post-race quote, the engine just shut off. The car just shut off. So really disappointing way to end what, what was a great start to the weekend. And uh, congratulations to all of Colombia, by the way, because <laughs> yeah, really. it's uh, quite the weekend for them. But, no, it was – it was quite something, and um, you know what was funny was Dale Coyne was actually almost cocky in his in his um, interview in the post race press conference. He was saying something basically to the effect of, um, "We wish we had more time races or something so that we could show everybody how it's done." So yeah, and according to to your uh, Twitter feed, it, it seemed like Mister. Uh, uh, actually, I guess I was in the second race. Never mind. Never mind. Cancel that. <laughs> anyway, very but, but speaking of speaking of disappointing, and certainly I don't want to take anything away from Carlos because I, I think he drove a great race and I think he deserved to win. But talk about ending that race as a dud. That race was so good in the last like half hour, and there was a incredible battle behind Huertas and, mm-hmm. and Wilson. That, Both was, the races were fantastic, right, actually. And, but that one had Montoya and Kanan, and, and, and Ray Hall was there. Well, and that's uh, where we need Morday to leave the discussion was, from Morday here. Morday was in right? there. Munoz was there. And yeah. then the race just totally fizzled at the end. We were so excited for this great finish. And yeah. then Ray Hall happened. <laughs> well, first, Saavedra happened. Yeah, okay. Well, you kind of expect that. Yeah, well, yeah. But still, <laughs> there was there was going to be that one lap. And it was another one of those brake checking things, right? Mm-hmm. And and I guess, you know, the argument is, well, I didn't brake check. I just lifted in first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which we heard, we've already heard before this year. So anyway, somebody didn't have their eyes open. He copped to it. Good for him. You know, uh, still sort of deflated every, you know, everybody from the high that we were all on waiting for that one lap dash, particularly Tony Kanaan. You had to feel for him. Oh, my gosh. he has, He has been just... You know, I don't want to pretend that I know Tony all that well or judge either way, but he certainly hasn't seemed to be as jovial walking around this year as you typically see him. So, no, I, uh, well, after the year that the way Target Chip Ganassi finished last year, the last half of last year, starting at Pocono, I mean, that team was on fire the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dixon won Pocono, then he swept the Toronto weekend, mm-hmm. and, and they were strong the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. And you had to think that team was going to carry that momentum in this year. And even with Tony was already going to to Target or, or to Ganassi Racing, I guess we should say, not to the Target yeah. ride. To the eight uh, car. Uh, yeah, right. To the 
eight car uh, before Dario had his, his incident and Tony stepped into that. So it wasn't like Tony came completely out of left field. We were still expecting good things from him, but it almost feels like the pressure of being the successor to Dario in the 10 car. It, it just seems like it's wearing on him because like, well, you said, I don't know if it's that so much as maybe the team is not clicking well with him. I, I somehow. think it's a bit of all of it. I think it is, yeah. It, but I think there's a little bit more pressure on him this year. The, I mean, that's a big, even for an Indianapolis 500 and an IndyCar champion, those are still really big shoes to fill. And uh, there's a lot of expectation there. And Dario and, and Scott had worked so well together for so long. And Target Chip Ganassi just had that system down. And when you mm-hmm. pull one driver out and plug another one in, you know, I, th- I think from an external standpoint, people expect, especially the driver of Tony's caliber, to be able to plug him in there and have everything just clicking right away. And as you said, it just doesn't seem like something is clicking there yet. And it's a cyclical effect. It doesn't click, and then the pressures get up, and then the confidence gets down, and then more mistakes happen, and it's just an ugly cycle. Um, and, and we've seen flashes from Kanan throughout the year. He started well in St. Pete. He had the great first race here at, at Houston. He's had other moments throughout the year. But by and large, I'd say for more more often than not, he's almost been an afterthought, which is a shame for him in that ride this year. Absolutely. And then on Saturday, of course, he was all set to get his finally, his, I think, probably first podium of the year. And uh, there goes Ray Hall. So, um yeah, it was a sh- it's certainly a shame. You really wanted to see him finally have some kind of a breakthrough. It just didn't happen for him. So, um, Speaking of veteran or, or high-profile drivers who were out to lunch this weekend, how about that Will Power? I don't know that I remember Will Power ever having a, a road or street course, certainly not a street course event like he had this weekend. And it wasn't just one race. It was two races, and you would mm-hmm. never expect that of willpower on it. And qualifying, like he just was not there. I don't think he ran much above maybe 12 all weekend. But, and then in the second race though, he took the green flag like a bat out of hell and he got... Oh no, you're right. I'm sorry. He did. He ran up as high as third at one point and then just got cycled back down in pit cycles, I think. Well, the pit cycles and then I believe he... Did he have contact with someone or maybe tap the wall at one point and then... I believe the rear end finally just let go a couple laps from the end. Of that's that right. Yeah. So one of the suspension parts just broke, mm-hmm. didn't it? Yeah, that's right. Well, I think there, I think there had been contact earlier in the that's, event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which you know, kind of was the same for everybody. But. Yeah, I don't think there's anybody who made it, who made it uh, who made it through both races or either race probably with a totally clean car. Mm-hmm. Well, Delara made some profit course. this weekend. Mm-hmm. Touching. <laughs> and. You know, we'd be remiss if we're talking about veteran drivers, not to mention Scott Dixon, who just had a bit of a brain cramp on Saturday, fully admitted to it later, and took Charlie Kimball and and Simon Pagenaud out with him, too. I felt bad for Charlie Kimball. Everyone all of a sudden, you know, they showed the the replay on TV. I don't know what you saw in the media center, since I'm pretty sure you weren't out getting wet in the rain. Hey. No, I, I will fully admit I was a precious little flower this weekend. I barely went outside. Every time John went outside to get something and came back, he was like sweat pouring down his face, drinking a cold bottle of water, just shaking his head and swearing. And he actually, it's not a potty mouth at all. I shouldn't exaggerate. But And I just went, no, nah. <laughs> I'm not interested. 
Nonetheless, the the, the oh. TV feed that we saw, that all of a sudden you just see Kimball and Dixon crash. Everyone's like, oh, what did Kimball do to his teammate? They ran into each other. Uh-huh. Then they show the replay, and it's all of a sudden, oh, right. it's not Kimball's fault at all. He was totally <laughs> a victim of that, as was Simon Pagenaud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it, I don't know. It was one of those weird weekends where some people just had everything go right for them, and some people had everything go wrong. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. It was an expensive weekend for some in terms of points, and it doesn't get any better when we have another double points event coming up this weekend. Well, maybe it's better for people that this one was the difficult one, if if you want to look at it that way, because there is still quite a, between Pocono and Fontana and Toronto, there's still quite a few points on the table. Like nothing, nothing is anywhere close to final yet. Oh sure, it's not it's not difficult unless you're you know ask James Hinchcliffe about Pocono last year, and he'll tell you what how fast points can go away. Interesting. Yeah, I, but get gained as well. I'm sorry? But, but get gained as well. There's 100 points on the oh, line for every yeah. one of those weekends this year. So. Yeah. Um, but if we want to talk about incidents where Delara made some money, but there, there are two that we haven't talked about yet that were sort of strangely similar and, and yet different in key ways. So on Saturday, there was the incident between Kumasato and Michaela Lotion where um, – now this is something. This this is a really key detail that I didn't. I'll, I'll com- completely confess I did not pick up on this the first time I saw the incident, but it turned out that a lotion was a lap down, and that is a key point here because the lotion decided that he wanted to go down the ins. And uh, where was Sato? Sato so kind of went right down the middle of the road. Kind no, of but what position was he in? in oh, the race? I, be- point. I believe he was second. I believe he was right, second so, at that point. Yeah, quite a bit more in, on the line. Mm-hmm. So for some reason, Alotion decides he wants to try to pass the second-place car, goes down the uh, way the outside, and Taku just lines up to take the corner normally. I, I don't I'm – with, I'm with a couple other people. I do not like – I know that the mirrors on these cars are tiny, but I do not like the I didn't know he was there argument because if you're a professional driver, you're kind of supposed to know where the cars around you are. But that being said, yes, the, the mirrors are tiny, and yes – you know, sometimes people shove their cars in where they really ought not to be, and I would call this one of those situations. And so, you know, poor Taku just sat up to take the corner normally, and then his race was over for a lap car. Now, on the other, on, in contrast, you've got Castro Neves and Bourdais, who were racing for position. Castro Neves was much, much further to the inside, so Bourdais naturally thought he saw a wide-open track and put himself into it. And then Castro Neves, some people called this blocking. I wouldn't call it a block, but I, I think he did the same thing. I think he was setting up normally for the corner, but just from a much, much stranger angle. Um, and then same thing, same turn and everything. I think it was six, and off they go. So, I mean, you, that's that's one situation where you've got basically identical incidents, apart from the fact that, a lotion was a lap down, and the Castro Neves move was much more dramatic. Those were the only two things that really set those two things apart. And so, in my opinion, Castro Neves and Bourdais, I can call that a racing incident. Sato and lotion, I was pretty surprised that lotion didn't have a penalty for that. We got taken out. What of the race. How much of a penalty does he need? Well, they they haven't hesitated to to slap people with fines after the race. They, I, I mean. I'd even argue that that was more egregious than Marco in terms of damage done to another competitor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with you there. No doubt about it. Um, 
I don't know that Elosha was necessarily setting him up to take a pass. I I think he just took... Well, what else is he going down the outside for? He was hardly... He wasn't even close to being alongside. I mean, if you look at where the contact was made, it was very much nose to tail. It was not... uh, Uh, No, it was front quarter to rear quarter. It was not nose to tail. Mm, They tapped... I mean, it... To me, it seemed that that Taku kind of just took a little bit more inside line. I don't think Mikhail was setting him up to try to pass him. I think uh, maybe Taku just braked a little earlier, and Eloshin got alongside him, and and Taku didn't know he was there. Uh, I don't think Eloshin did anything by any means intentional. I don't think he was even trying to pass him. That said, being a lap down, very much sense to me. Being a lap down, I think he should have he shouldn't have been anywhere close to that in in any way. So right. I, I do put responsibility on him. I'm not giving him the free pass here. I think he should have been a, a very cautious driver at that point. Um, now, Castro Neves, on the other hand, um, when when you take that inside line, and, and he was very inside. He was middle of the track at best inside, more likely, uh, to defend the position against Bourdais. Which I'm fine with. He made the first move. He took that line. That's his to choose. But then he came all the way back across the track to set up for the optimal angle into turn six. You don't get to do that if you take the defensive line. You pick your you know, line. The line that he was on for that turn, though, there was – I don't think he – I wouldn't have considered him set up for the turn on that line because there was no way he would make the turn on that line. Which line are you referring to? The inside what, line? The, as far inside as he was, that, well, that's, having well, actually been physically at turn six this weekend and looked at it, there's no way he was going to make that turn from where he was. He well, had to adjust somehow. Well, that's fine, but that's the line he chose. He chose to take a defensive line. I don't think, line. in his opinion, I don't think he had chosen his line yet. He wasn't close oh, enough to the no, corner, no, and no, I would no. take, I would accept that. No. He was, he was a fair ways back from the corner at that point. I would accept that explanation. No, 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 no. He took that line coming out of the big long carousel-y kink going around the Astrodome, and that straight going down into turn six. I. He chose that left lane. Six is is pretty well where he was setting up. Bourdais was already there. Elio had t- Elio had established his line as the lead car. Elio does this all the time. I was I'm just not walking- disagreeing with you. I'm, I I think that if you're going to blame somebody, you blame Elio in that situation. Oh because yeah, yeah. For position, and um, yeah. it was a wide open track for Bourdais, and he, as far as I'm concerned, Bourdais did nothing wrong in that situation. I, I'm I, just saying I don't think it's right to say that because when you start using words like defending and and changing lines you're starting to get into into blocking territory and i don't consider this a blocking situation oh i do i do i think elio took that line he knew what he was because he knew bordet was fast and if he didn't take that inside line bordet would have elio went there first I don't think Bourdais was even a try, going to try to pass him on the outside of turn six. You just can't do it. He was probably setting up for an over-under through turn six and on to turn seven. Mm-hmm. And he was setting up to apex the corner and take the tight line coming out of six. Elio took the tight line into six and went ahead to take the, the wide line coming out. But he established himself on the inside of the racing line and then swerved all the way back across the track to where Bourdais already was. And then... And then... I genuinely don't think that that's that that was a situation where he was consciously blocking. I think he just realized that he wasn't properly set up for the corner. I don't think he was consciously blocking either. 
nonetheless. So you're saying that you think he he constantly unconsciously blocks? Is that what you're saying? I think because I think we've already established that it's a habit. Well, yes, it is. He's got a little Scott Mm -hmm. Sharp in him to say the least. (laughs) I'm saying Uh he established his line. It was his responsibility to hold that line. Now, whether he was blocking to keep Bourdais behind him, I don't know. I don't necessarily think that was the case. Uh, But he certainly took a line that caused that incident. Like I said, I don't think Bourdais was even even fathoming trying to pass Elio on the outside to turn six. I don't think that was the case at all. But as Elio had already established his inside lane, he needed to stay there. He couldn't swerve all the way back out. And then, though, <laughs> the kicker to me is... I don't know how you would even see Bourdais in that situation from one of these cars. He was so far inside of him. He, he knew Bourdais was already there. He knew Bourdais had chased him the lap before. He had chased him through the carousel. As I said, I'm mostly playing devil's advocate here. I agree that, that Bourdais did nothing wrong. Right. I'm just, I'm just sort of... Thinking. You just want to argue with me. Well, yeah, it's okay. fun. We established that. <laughs> did you get a chance, though, to hear Elio's interview afterwards? I did, but remind me. I mean, he basically came out and he was incredulous that Bourdais would not have gotten out of his way. <laughs> I mean, he, he, paraphrasing, he came out and said, I am Elio Castroneves. How dare this person not get out of my way when I'm driving my own line? I can do what I want, and, I'll, and, and it's his responsibility to get out of my way. He That's was, some pretty serious paraphrasing. You better mean that. He was fired. Go listen to it. Go the, he laid every ounce of blame on Sebastian Bourdais. Hmm. Every ounce. Of, he took absolutely no responsibility whatsoever for that accident. None. Hmm. I mean, if you would listen to him, he was in his own little world, and Bourdais fell out of the sky and ran him down on purpose. <laughs> Go back. It's got to be something. Right. It's on YouTube. I don't know, but... But it was absolutely 100% Bordet's fault. And Elio, Elio's been in accidents before. Other than, v, I think it was Vitor Mira or Rafa Matos. It was either at Michigan or Texas a few years ago. I don't remember which one it was. They got an accident on the front straight, and Elio got out of the out of the car and got all up in whichever one's business it was and all in his face. That's the only time I've really seen Elio. Okay, except for Edmonton. Those two are the only time I've ever seen Elio upset. This was as mad as I've ever seen Elio getting out of the car before. He was that well, furious. He was under a lot of pressure this weekend. Let's not play that down because this was a big, big weekend for his sponsors. And I can tell you, and I'll talk about this a little bit more later, but having had the good fortune of being a guest of, um, of Shell this past weekend, I saw just how very much he gets paraded around and, and trotted before VIPs all weekend long and people are given Pennzoil shirts to wear and, and die casts and support Elio. He's our guy. This is our marquee, our flagship driver. And I mean, the, the pressure on him, it doesn't really show from the outside, but it would have been absolutely astronomical. So for what that's worth. Not much. Not my opinion. No, no. A a seasoned driver should be used to it. Yeah. No, I think it was a bigger disappointment because he knew power had been struggling, and this was really his chance to make up some points and have a, a good, good take a big bite out of that that lead that power had established. And, and that one. Well, and that's 
that's worth saying out loud is the fact that all of those guys up at the, at the top of the points had pretty terrible weekends. And so nobody really came out the winner in that situation, for, fortunately for for all of them, I guess. I'm, I'm sure they're all breathing a bit of a sigh of relief in that regard. Cause it yeah, been, really, it came out not that much different than we went in. Yeah, it could have been much, much worse for all of those guys up at the top of the standings if somebody who was not too far behind had also had a good weekend. So. You know, we have to give a shout-out, though, to Juan Pablo Montoya. Wasn't he just phenomenal this weekend? That was fun to watch him this weekend. Yeah. I, I could not believe that he and Huertas did not uh, have an incident, or he and Hawksworth have an incident at the end of either of those two races. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was all over Jack Hawksworth in the last, what, ten laps or so of that second race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was so much fun to watch. It was some of the best racing I've seen on a street course in a long time. And it's easily the strongest performance that we've seen from him since his return. So yeah. I, yeah. I, you wonder if it's a one-off or if something has finally clicked there. Well, he's halfway through the season now. You'd hope that at this point he's kind of gotten back into that open-wheel mode. And, uh, you know, I heard Kurt and Kurt Cavan and Kevin Lee talking a couple weeks ago. And they thought Montoya would actually get, if he was going to get a win, would more likely to get one on an oval. Hmm. But um, Well, that's going to tell a bit of a story, is watching him now go into Pocono and Iowa and Toronto and watching him perform on those three different tracks after seeing what he could do at Houston and see what he comes up with, because that'll tell a pretty good story. Well, I think he's in for a, an eye-opening event at Pocono and Iowa. Um, I don't think he's... You know, Pocono is driven in the stock car. It's it's a completely different world than than running Pocono in an Indy car. In Iowa, I don't think he's he's ever done anything like like a bull ring in an Indy car like that. So I think both of those are going to be. I think he'll I think he'll struggle more in Iowa than he will at Pocono. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I I don't see him contending at either of those events. But I think when we get to Toronto in two weeks, I think that's where we may see him climb the podium again. I, I just feel like he's kind of got his, his mojo back on the road and street circuits, and I think he's going to be strong there. And seemingly has an ability to stay out of trouble, which is key at those events, obviously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, more shout-outs. Let's, let's um, give a shout-out to four of the uh, four rookies out of the six um, podium positions. Four, the four rookies finished in the, uh, in the four – hang on, I'm not wording this well <laughs> – so six podium positions available for the weekend. Four of them were occupied by rookies. There we go. We had Carlos Huertas, of course, race winner in race one, and uh, Carlos Munoz, the two Carloses. He was uh, Carlos Munoz was third in race one, as well as um, Michaela Lotion in second on, in race two, and Jack Hawksworth. Great to see him finally get a result that he deserves as well. He's been fighting for that one all year. Good weekend for Honda, too. Mm-hmm. Yes, very strong. He and took, um, uh, two of the three podiums on Saturday, and all three of the podiums on Sunday. Very interesting, especially since when we were coming out of Texas, we were looking at a pretty Chevy dominant weekend there. Mm-hmm. So the the swing on the different style of course is very interesting to see. You know, something I I just noticed. I pulled up the box score from Sunday. I thought Sunday Sunday was a good race, good good competitive race. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know how many leaders there were. <laughs> Not many. No, I know. Two. And you know what? That is that is worth mentioning because NBC Sports Network did actually a very good job this weekend of not only having the right guys in the booth and 
Oh my gosh, Steve Matchett is it, awesome. Matchett is, fin- is phenomenal, and he and Lee and Paul just all mesh really, really well. Plus, they did a really great job of staying with the battles mm-hmm. this weekend and not just sort of zoning in on the leaders and staying there. So. Totally agree. Could not yeah. agree more. That somehow NBC, it doesn't seem to really matter who they put in the booth. They all seem to gel, whether it's it's Lee and Townsend, uh, who's the third on the normal one? Help me out here. Dahlenbach? Yeah. Uh, no, he's not there anymore. He's been. He's done some, hasn't he? Maybe. I don't know. Why am I drawing a blank on who? I'm not sure why Nonetheless, you're I mean, you put Paul Trace in there. He fits right in. Steve Matchett fits in. David Hobbs did uh, Milwaukee last year and maybe doing it this year. Didn't Brian Till do one as Brian well? Brian Till did at uh, Texas? Yeah, that seems right. Yeah, yeah. So it's just whoever they put in, they seem to really gel. And I think that's a credit to the whole production team. But as you said, especially at some points in this race where Justin Wilson got out to like a – I don't know, it was like a six-second lead or something like that. It could have been pretty dull, but some of that racing back in the field was just phenomenal for them to be able to follow that and really bring a lot of the action. You know, we, we rip on, on TV a lot, so I think it's fair that we, we... We have historically, but you know what? This year overall has been quite a bit better. Even the ABC I've, broadcasts, which we've, which we've typically panned the most, mm-hmm. have been quite a bit stronger, I, I would say, this year than, than in years past. So. I completely agree with you. Yeah, it's very nice to see all of that coming around. A couple just quick things that we should go over before we sign off. And we are getting pretty close to our time because we don't like to take up too much of your time. Um, There was a bit of a side story that came up this weekend with some some concerns of of longevity issues with the brakes being brought up. Um, The first sign of it was in... And I, I, I was digging through the, the team press releases after the race, and every once in a while you find something in there that doesn't make it into into the sort of main press releases for the race. And um, that was where I found that that quote from Rob Edwards at Schmidt-Peterson-Hamilton Motorsports saying, um, basically, we've had an ongoing issue with the performance of the, of the brakes from Brembo. We've told IndyCar about it, and uh, so far they've done they haven't done anything to fix it. And so um, – so I took the opportunity to get in touch with Brembo, the uh, the sole supplier of uh, brake parts for the IndyCar series, just to get their side of the story. And essentially, they, they just addressed this one issue, and that's fair enough. This is really the only thing that they had to go on. Um, there have been a couple other issues that have come up, and I've talked to Brembo on those separately, and there's been no news on those yet. But they did address this one issue that Simon Pagano and his team had on Saturday by saying that the wet conditions on Saturday caused the brakes to be running at a lower than optimal temperature, and they gave details on what the optimal temperature range is for the brake products that, that they supply, and, you know, basically said this is all in a memo that we give to the teams, and, and, and you know, I'm not going to put words in their mouth, but it was... I sort of got the feeling that they were saying they should know this and we don't really get what the problem is. So anyway, all of that rundown of, of the back and forth on that is in a story on morefrontwing.com, still on the front page. So if you go and have a look for it, you'll find it there. Um, and it's certainly something that we're going to be following as as time goes on because, um, as I said, there are a couple of sort of small incidents that are starting to get weaved together into something that may or may not be a larger potential issue. So we'll keep an eye on it. And I don't think this is the first issue that SPM has had with the Brembo brakes. I've heard rumblings you know, earlier in the year that mm-hmm. um, 
And not just them, I don't think. I don't think it's just them, I think, but I, I've heard of them of them specifically. Not that they're having problems getting to temperature, but getting them to mate with the sets, the consistency between between one rotor and another. And, and even though they, they, they're built to very tight tolerances, for whatever reason, the performance seems to be varying from piece to piece. So teams are doing a lot of testing, trying to get sets of brakes to match to each other so that you don't have differential braking performance from left to right across the car. Mm -hmm. So I know that they've been fighting that issue quite a bit as well. So it's not something that's necessarily new, but it's not. this may be a new aspect of the brake, but I know they've been having some issues with the performance of the brakes for quite some time now. Well, certainly something that we'll keep an eye on going forward. Um, I guess I should spend a few minutes talking about what it was like to actually be on site because I was able to, as I said earlier, get down there and be, uh, I was very fortunate to be a guest of Shell and Pennzoil down there. And um, I will say that I was I was grateful for that. They treat their guests very well. I had some opportunities to sit in on some panel discussions um, and uh, avail myself of the hospitality that they had there on site, which uh, certainly it, it's not very far from the media center and it's also indoors. And so it made life a lot easier in a lot of ways. And it was very, very nice to be able to to have that available and sort of be able to focus on on um, delivering coverage without worrying about whether I was going to be able to find something to eat and, and where I was going to stay and that sort of thing. So many thanks to Shell and Pennzoil for that. Um, I mentioned this in my live blog, but it was some, it is something that I want to mention here as well. One of my highlights of the weekend was the opportunity to meet Tony Syme, who is the lead designer and engineer on the, um, the Chevrolet IndyCar engine program with Ilmore Engineering based in the UK. Um, really excellent guy. I didn't, it wasn't um, sort of an official capacity that we had our chat. It was a pre-dinner chat at a cocktail reception. So I didn't ask any hard-hitting questions. Um, but one of the things that came up was that um, they, they – it's – the, the whole reason that IndyCar Heat um, has mandated that engine manufacturers are, are meant to use um, off-the-shelf products, which is in the rules, is that they want to? They want the engine manufacturers to to develop commercial relationships with their with their lubricant partners, and ideally, you know, use that to for further um, engagement and and activation of IndyCar in advertising, marketing, that sort of thing. And so, I asked Tony, is is the partnership between Chevrolet, Elmore, and Pennzoil purely a commercial one, or is there some other reasoning, some other benefit to that niece. And I really got genuinely, like, I, I think I get a pretty good read on people, and I genuinely felt as though he was telling the truth on this. He said, absolutely, we tested their products in our labs against those of their competitors, and we genuinely did find that this product from Pennzoil did offer a quantifiable advantage over the others. And so that, to me, said volumes about, about the, the the product that they're working with and, and knowing that it's not simply an advertising setup is something that, that I, I I enjoyed that detail. But another thing that was interesting was that he had no idea who Honda's engine oil was. <laughs> and apparently he had a chance to ask Derek Walker that question and Derek didn't know either. So um, something we're going to ask around a little bit about just out of curiosity, not because necessarily means anything but these are the kinds of things that IndyCar fans like to know so so we're going to ask around about that for sure um 
As for being on site, one thing that I, I, I did do on Friday was I went to each of the grandstands and um, gathered the information for our latest spectator seating guide. Didn't get a chance to get it up this weekend because holy cow was this schedule ever busy, which makes no sense to me because the only series that were there was Pro Mazda and IndyCar, and yet I could not find an hour to get this thing posted to save my life. Um, but... Anyhow, it will go up because it, it's not any use to anybody this year, obviously. But if people start planning for ticket purchases for next year, we want it to be there so that you can check it out. Um, there are four grandstands on this on site there. And uh, one of them is is the pit lane grandstand, which is by far the largest. It's massive, actually. It's very it's quite huge. And then there's um, a sort of medium sized one that sits between the chicane and turn three. And then out at the far end of the course are two smaller ones. And all four spots are actually very interesting. I'll let you um, read more about that in the spectator seating guide when it comes out. But as far as the physical layout of the track, I thought it was really well done. It made uh, it made sense. It's a, it's a nice layout for racing, as we saw. Um, the, the grandstand viewing opportunities are, are excellent. The Shell Suite is in a great spot. The Honda Club is in an excellent spot. It's up um, actually set up in NRG Stadium, formerly Reliant Stadium, about um, maybe two or three stories up so that you can actually look down on the track from where it is. Indoors, air-conditioned. I think there was food in there and stuff. And all you had to do to get into the Honda Club was show them your car keys, your Honda car keys. Apparently, if you're from the Houston area and you showed up with your Honda car keys, you were in. So that there were tons of people in there when I was there on Friday. It was by far where the most people present at the track were. And so if you somehow get a hold of some attendance numbers and, and they end up they, they end up sounding a lot higher than what you think is reasonable, that could be why. Because between the shell suite and and that huge um, entertainment area. There would have been a lot of people hiding in the air-conditioned suites uh, this weekend, I promise you, because after that couple of hours that I spent out there on Friday, honestly, that night I had to leave dinner early because I pretty much had heat stroke, and I went, okay, I'm done with being outside this weekend. This isn't fun anymore. Um, it was hot. God, it was hot, and I don't know how they didn't have guys basically passing out. Um they were, it was kind of fortunate that they didn't. Somebody said to me this weekend, actually more than one person said that the difference in having lights to run the night races or not was about $20,000. And I don't know how you don't spend that money. Come on. It's like, it, there's no question in my mind. It Unless, you know, okay, John was okay. saying that the neighborhood there is not the best neighborhood, so maybe they're concerned about having people there at night. It's not beautiful, I'll tell you that. You know, it's not, it's not, it's no Belle Isle. And they really need to, I, I think on TV, they make a pretty concerted effort to keep the Astrodome out of the shot as much as possible, which is good, because my goodness, is that thing decrepit and ugly. Um, and so I can see some reasons why maybe that and getting people out of the area at night might be somewhat of a concern. And heaven knows that those teams after Saturday's race, if that race ended at nine o'clock at night, they would have been going to, wanting to go to bed as the sun came up and then starting another day at work. So well, here's the question though. If you want to run night races and you keep this a double header, when do you run the races? Do you run them Friday night? 
Mm-hmm. Or do you run it Sunday night? Yeah, that's the other thing, too. Although they're running them late enough, honestly, now on Sunday that people can't really get out on Sunday anyway very easily. I saw a couple people I, that were on Red Eyes on Sunday night, but not very many. Most people had to stay over to Monday morning anyway. So, But, yeah, that's also a fair point because you, you're not only thinking about the teams there. You're thinking about the spectators, right? Do people really want to be in at NRG Park until 10 o'clock, maybe more with traffic, and then going to work the next day? So all things to think about. Um, and the discussion that was going on about, well, why don't we just run it earlier in the year? John in, insists that there's a rodeo that's happening in Houston sort of around February or so that, that ties up the entire city for about a month. So it seems as though that is not really an option. So anyhow, it was my second year at the event. Um, obviously the last one was in last October. And so conditions fairly significantly different a little bit better organized this year went much more smoothly one of my enduring memories of last year was just all the the let's use the word kerfuffle twice in one podcast there you go um schedules changing and, and cars breaking apart and the track with the huge bumps and everything um being a bit of a nightmare they seem to have resolved a lot of that this year things went much more smoothly um and so from that perspective it was good I definitely would like to see some con- some more concerted consideration of having at least one of these be a night race because honestly I think maybe the only thing that saved them was the fact that Saturday was mostly wet and so the conditions on on for the drivers were not as bad as they could have been. But I mean a- an enjoyable event. Houston's a nice city uh, and I'd be very happy to go back. That that was my overall impression. Did you have anything that you wanted to add in terms of what you saw or questions? Because I know before we started, you were wanting to talk about its position in the schedule. No, no, I don't think we have time to get into the schedule consideration. You just touched upon it a little bit with going earlier in the year makes it a little bit more difficult, especially if they want to put New Orleans earlier in the year, if that event happens next year. I don't think you want to do New Orleans and Houston both in the spring. I think you need to spread those two out a bit. Um, So then you have to look at is the schedule going to go later into the fall because uh, I, I just don't see this being a good permanent time for it. I think they got a little bit lucky because, as mm-hmm. you said, it was, it was hot down there, I'm sure, this weekend, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been. I mean, it could have That's easily hot. been over 100 degrees both days. Um, they were fortunate. I think the rain probably was a fortunate occurrence. Uh, if it's 100 degrees and 70% humidity, it's just – it's maybe not even safe to race. You looked at some of the drivers getting out of the cars, other than Charlie Kimball getting out of the car on Sunday. Everyone <laughs> else looked absolutely wiped out. There was the, uh, I mean, Will Power looked as exhausted as I've ever seen a driver that day. I mean, he almost, <laughs> I don't say this to be derogatory, but he looked like Nigel Mansell getting out of the car at Michigan it's funny you should mention you sh- it's funny you should call it Charlie Kimball specifically because John and I were sitting in the media center when they did his post race interview and John went geez I think I got to start taking shots of insul- insulin because he's fresh as a baby <laughs> <laughs> yeah usually you see Elio look like that after a race but yeah, yeah. Uh, Charlie Charlie looked like he had uh, 
just gotten done with morning warm up and was ready to go out for a race then. Yeah. Well, and he said that. He finished, he finished fourth, so maybe that's, that might be why. He's maybe. pretty happy. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, I think, you know, sort of a much more um, surface skim of all the uh, all the talking points from the weekend than we normally do. There's, there was much, much more that happened in both of those races. We'd, we'd almost need to do a show a day this week to get through it all, but Sadly, we're just about out of time. Uh, we are still going to be on, um, at, what are we going to, uh, full throttle, I guess we can say, right through for the next few weeks. Um, Paul, you're going to be in Pocono, it sounds like, next weekend, kind of a last I thing. I am. I am extremely excited to get out to Pocono. Uh, it's a track I've wanted an IndyCar to be at for many, 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 many years. Uh, it's an event when they announced that I wanted to get to, uh, so I'm extremely excited to get out there and, and see the Indy cars on such a historic track that were really built for them so many years ago. Very cool. And then I think you're going to be doing sort of half coverage at Iowa. I will. Because be you're going to have Jack with you, right? I will. I'll be taking Jackson back to Iowa. He is bouncing off the walls to get there. <laughs> so I'll do those back-to-back weekends, and then it's Toronto weekend. So I'm all, yeah. I get to follow the circus around for three weekends in a row. It's uh, it's not, not a bad gig to have. Fantastic. And we'll both be on site for Toronto, and which is a good thing because it's going to be a darn busy weekend. I think we've got um, – I don't think we have any of the Mazda Road to Indy Series. Lights no, they're are running good. Iowa, aren't they? Are the lights full, at Iowa? The, the full suites are – the full suite of series I thought were in Iowa. Don't let me pull. let me take a look. You know what? I'm going to pull it up right now because I don't want to give misinformation there. Pro, Pro Mazda is not back until mid-Ohio, I don't think. Um, but let me just get my computer organized and pull this up here. I've, I made this really handy graphic at the beginning of the year. Here it is that shows all the different um, series and where they're running. I think we're in a big open part of the schedule now for a lot of the support series. So Houston had Pro Mazda. Lights are running at Pocono. IndyCar is alone at Iowa. And then really? at Toronto. Yes. There is no support event at Iowa? I think they're doing the USAC midgets again, aren't they? Or is it? I don't know. Anyhow. Um, and then, and that's, is that a Saturday race? It is a Saturday night event, yes. Yeah. Um, and then at Toronto, we've got everybody but, but Pro Mazda. And then everybody's back together again at Mid-Ohio. So this is sort of a weird part of the schedule in the middle here. So Yeah, I just pulled up the Toronto. Talk about a packed weekend. Yeah, because that, that was interesting. The, they got, the USF 2000, the Acura Sports Car Challenge, the, e, the IndyCar Series, obviously, the mm-hmm. Porsche GT3 Cup, the oh, the off-road trucks are there. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're good fun as well. Now, Toronto's going to be pretty epic. The, uh, the Toyo Tires F1600 Championship is the Ontario arm of the level that can be considered just below the, the USF 2000 level, um, sort of, if you're – and not – it goes much deeper than that, the explanation, but um, that it's sort of a surface way of looking at it. And I do quite a lot of uh, fairly in-depth work with the Toyota Tires F1600 Championship here in Canada. And um, so I'm looking forward to having them on track at the same time as um, as the IndyCar and the Mazda Road to India. And I know that they are beside themselves excited to have the opportunity. That weekend's also part of their Super Series, um, which is something that is um, combining the some, some entrants from Quebec as well as the full series from Ontario and they're doing sort of a back and forth um, four, four race highlight 
sub series within their own series there to to um, get themselves into some sort of more high profile events. And something worth mentioning, we probably should have saved all this for the week before the Toronto race, but something <laughs> worth mentioning too about the um, the GT3 Cup Canada series. Scott Hargrove and Spencer Piggott, who are the two guys who are in the front of the Pro Mazda Championship points right now, are both racing in that series, the GT3 Cup Canada series as well. And that has been a heck of a battle for them, um, as well as throwing in Chris Green, who's been a regular of the series since it formed, I think, in 2011. It's been really fantastic racing, and it's been a lot of fun to see that rivalry get carried into a sports car series north of the border, of all things. So um, if you're going to be outside in Toronto, don't go running for your pizza and beer during those races. You'll want to check them out because uh, there are a couple names that are going to be in there that you'll recognize. So should we go now? Are we done? (laughs) Have we talked enough? I I think we've covered more than we had intended. I think so. And I think it's time for us to be quiet now and save some stuff for the next couple of weeks. (laughs) But definitely keep an eye on morefrontwing.com. We're going to have lots of coverage from Pocono this weekend at the very least. And we'll be back next week to wrap everything up. Let's hope we've got just as many storylines to talk about and have just as much of an interesting event before we get things set up for the race at Ohio. Ohio. Iowa. (laughs) Same thing. Yeah, not really. (laughs) Anyhow, uh, thanks for joining us. Always glad to be in your ears. Really appreciate you taking the time to listen. And if you need IndyCar news and views, get a grip with more Front Wing.